Good morning, and welcome to Our American Heritage. I am Arch Hunter, the host of the program. Our American Heritage is a program where we explore in depth the American experience from its beginning through the present. And today we want to welcome Lydia Nuttall. Lydia, thank you, and welcome to the show. Yeah, it's an honor and a privilege to do this with the great, the wonderful Art Hunter. All right, let's not go overboard here, Lydia. <laughs> We're going to have to put you back on your medication if, if, you, if you start there. Uh, Lydia has written a wonderful book on forgotten American stories. I highly recommend that to all of our listeners to go through with your kids. There are so many nice activities in there and wonderful stories and beautiful pictures that talk about oftentimes the things that a lot of historians have overlooked. So Lydia, briefly before we get into Lexington and Concord, share with us how you got to that point and the process of research you did for the book. Well, it was kind of easy uh, to all of you who are mothers out there. You just don't mess with mama bear. And I was really feeling like my kids were not getting the whole truth, a complete balanced perspective of our early American heritage, our history. And I, as evidence, checked out all the textbooks in my school district that taught American history from kindergarten clear through seniors in high school. And yeah, basically found the Constitution and the Declaration, Mayflower Compact, all those foundational documents of our country's founding and our, our government, all those principles of liberty were in the back of the book in the reference section. I thought, well, good heavens, no wonder why we're in such a mess in this country when it comes to our government is because we don't teach anymore from those primary source documentation. We teach what government has become rather than what our form of government was meant to be with checks and balances and separation of powers and, you know, having a moral and a religious people in order to have our constitutional government even work. So all that had been eroded or tucked away or buried or twisted or distorted. And I went, okay, enough of that. I'm going to take all the stories that I've discovered in my adult years that inspired me and my son, who I was homeschooling at the time, and make them available in a printed form to all of the children in Utah, and then that branched out nationwide, and I even have some people across the world who are wanting it. It's on ForgottenAmericanStories.com is the website where you can get that resource. It's family-friendly. I wrote it for families, teachers, obviously. If it's good for families, it's good for you too. So it puts back into our American history that which has been canceled. <laughs> and and listeners, there are, uh, if I recall, or. Lydia, at the end of each section, there is a list of activities that can be done with, with yes. the children to uh, solidify that part of what they have read and the lessons or the, the, the series of lessons. So a lot of yeah. good hand, hands-on things they're able to do yep. there. And yep. Lydia is also the vice president of We the Kids. And uh, Lydia and I do a show together called We the Kids on Saturday mornings on the radio station. So they're all podcasts also, if you could listen to them. So, Lydia, we want to talk about Lexington and Concord. And do you have any idea of why I picked that topic, particularly at this time? Uh, and you cr might. I mean, crickets. You know, I, crickets. Crickets. <laughs> it's hard to know what goes on inside that brain of yours, Arch. Oh. My wife says the same thing. It's, it's also very hard for me to live inside that brain. Because um, <laughs> oftentimes I talk to myself and then I'm really in trouble when I answer in Spanish. So, oh, my goodness. Well, we are, uh, April 19th is the anniversary 
of Lexington and Concord. So we're coming up a short amount of time to the anniversary of Lexington and Concord. And most of us know, Lydia, that that is what we call the shot heard around the world. And a lot, most of us historians will talk about, not argue, but talk about, well, the shot heard around the world. Was it Lexington or was it Concord? Or as a lot of us do, we just say, it's both because we really can't separate them at that point. But the first question, Lydia, we need to ask is, how did we ever get to the place in these colonies where Lexington and Concord became the first actual conflict of the American Revolution? What got us there to this point where we decided as colonists to take on our government, to take on the superpower military of the British military and get to this point where a lot of colonists said, that's enough, we're going to stand up and we're not taking this anymore. And what are some of the things you think that got us to that point? Well, some of the things that I have learned in preparation for this, and you give me all the pushback you want. Um, I was telling Arch earlier that uh, I listened to several podcasts, and one actually seemed to favor the British side of the Lexington Concord story, which I found quite fascinating because there always are more than one, just one story, one side, depending on where you are in that. And of course, we are like here it is in the, you know, many, 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 many years after the fact. And so one of the things I learned is, of course, there were, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, there were the intolerable acts. Britain was the one who ruled over us. We were under the control of the King George III in Great Britain. Uh, we were British Americans. And so in order that we would be more under the control of the king and parliament. If anything happened that was going amiss among the colonies here in America, then they tried to squash that by, for instance, the Intolerable Acts or, you know, increasing the taxes. We've heard of the Boston Tea Party. Little by little, we would react to something that was not fair, not just the American colonists would. And then in response, Britain, the king and parliament would, for instance, they shut down our harbor in Boston. No more imports, no more exports. Well, that could really hurt if you're depending, you know, if you're someone that lives in Boston and you're depending on certain supplies to come in from other places of the world that we could not produce here. So I know they did something with sugar, they did something with tea, you know, tax those highly. And so a lot of American, British Americans would say, well, fine, we're not going to drink tea. going to drink something else. And maybe they put honey in their tea instead of sugar. And I don't know, we were just kind of a, I don't want to say a feisty bunch. I would be too if things started going weird with my rights being taken away or laws being passed that were very one-sided where we didn't have, for instance, the representation to share our side of the story in parliament. They would just hear whatever side they heard. I don't know. It was just, it was kind of a mess. You know, communication wasn't the best back then. You had to write a letter and 
it would take two months to go across the sea to get to either Great Britain or to America. And in the meantime, two months of stuff more could happen. I don't know what your thoughts on that are. Well, uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate, Lydia, if you don't mind. Uh, oh, that's a very I'm, easy position for you to play. Well, of course, because <laughs> that's my personality. I love poking the bear. Um, and the mama bear? My mama, well, I don't poke mama bear because I live with her and... Um, <laughs> I don't want to incur her wrath any more than I usually do on a daily basis. She loves me, so that's... She does. God she bless totally her. Does. <laughs> God bless her. <laughs> well, I want to go back when you said our rights were being squished. And I'm going to... Let's go back. The king and parliament pretty much left the colonists alone for probably 125 to 135 years. And then as time went on and the colonies began to expand westward... The French were out there, and the French wanted to hold on to the territory, particularly for trade. And so there was conflicts between the French and Native Americans and the colonists. So the colonies asked King George to eradicate the French from the western part of our colonies. And so King George sent over military, sent over a lot of military, and that's what ensued in the what we call the French and Indian War, the French and Native Americans against the Brits. And ultimately, the British military won the French and Indian War, or what we sometimes call the Seven Years War. And when that was over, and the, the French were then moved into either Canada or they went back to France, the British government was bankrupt. They were broke. And so King George and Parliament decided that we colonists asked the military to get rid of the French, which they did. And now they need money. So they felt it was fair for Parliament to begin to tax the colonies to pay back some of the money that they had to use to get the French out of here. So Wasn't it in Britain's uh, interest, though? I mean, if we're part of Britain, wouldn't they have been wanting the French to back off from... Well, well sure. It was also in their interest to, to have the French uh, vacate the western you know, Ohio River Valley in that area. But it was first initiated by the colonists asking the king to... We, we need protection and we want to move westward. So now that's the other side. Now, with that... I'll come back to your side. And now, how is the British military going to protect colonists that are wanting to move westward? How are they going to protect us? Because there's a lot yeah. of going <laughs> on out there. And so what the king did is he put the Proclamation of Act, Act of 1763 into effect, which basically said, you colonists can only go out into the west so far and you must stop. Because you won't be able to have my protection. Correct. Correct. Could they have still gone past that? Well, not assuming without, the risk. It was of it was no against it was against British law to go out past that de line of demarcation. In Pennsylvania, it was this side of Pittsburgh. Oh my! Well, so I can I can already see a problem right there because yeah, it's like telling a kid, okay, there's the cookie jar up there, right. but you uh, are not supposed to move any closer than right here in front correct. of the fridge. Correct. <laughs> So here, here is an here here is a lack of understanding from the British Parliament and the King really didn't understand the mindset of colonists where everything here, Lydia, was land. 
you know, our wealth was land. Our yeah. our right, so to speak, was to be able to pursue parts of any part of land that wasn't settled and be able to have that. Where in England, the king and parliament, that was not in their DNA to understand what the Proclamation Act would do to a lot of colonists. Their thinking was, he's doing that to protect us at that point. So the push and shove started yeah. back and forth with, okay, but we still need taxes. Now the colonists are mad at the parliament and the king. Now the colonists say, we're not paying anything. So then that's when the Intolerable Acts, the Samp Acts, the Townsend Act, all those, the Sugar Act, the Tea Act, all got put into place trying to force colonists to into- To pay the tax. Pay, and it was a small tax. It was not large. It was a small amount of taxes. But again, coming back to the other side, what angered the colonists was not necessarily the taxation. It was the lack of representation, which you said. Yeah. And so when you see taxation without representation as tyranny, if to ca what's capitalized in that is the representation yeah. at that point. So w we now have this push-pull going back and forth between king, parliament, not understanding us, the colonists, I mean us, we... Right. We not fully understanding their point, the British government point of view, that they were bankrupt. And so the Boston Massacre happened, which was uh, totally propaganda from the colonist point of view with the Paul Revere painting and the mural and everything was put out from that. And then we get to the Boston Tea Party, you know, and so that really was solidified king saying okay we're going to shut down the harbor we're going to take over your government now you're going to be judged by mm -hmm. british judges, judges yeah so that are paid you know by we the see, king. we're seeing yeah. this go back and forth and it's, <laughs> like, it's it begins to elevate itself to the point where ultimately and i tragically it got to lexington and concord yeah fascinating fascinating how you know in retrospect do you think what are some lessons we can learn from this? I mean, just at this point, how well, could all that been alleviated? Well, Al, Edwin Burke, who was a member of parliament, would constantly get up in parliament and say to the rest of his fellow parliamentarians, we don't really understand the mindset of the colonists. If we could understand, if we could just try to understand the mindset of the colonists and what they believe and what they hold to and put ourselves in their position, we could eliminate or alleviate this whole situation. But on the other side, Lydia, the colonists are saying, well, if we can only have representation in parliament and fight for our point of view legally in parliament, this also could be eliminated. So the lesson is an age old lesson of trying to understand another point of view to see why they hold to that and see where we can come to some sort of compromise and understanding position so we don't have to get to the point where bloodshed is taking place. Yeah, I, yeah, that, gosh, let's just stop stop the show now i mean this is a perfect, <laughs> we, perfect. We, we, let's we can't. just end on that we can't because we're paying lesson. you big bucks to do these oh, shows yeah. and, oh, and yeah. you know we're gonna oh, have to yeah, prorate yeah, your yeah. salary 
but 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 really, that is the nail on the head. Is uh, it, it goes within our families? Are we understanding mm-hmm. our children's point of view? Are our children, you know, are we able to be calm enough to and and hold discussion and discourse, civil discourse, with within uh, our own families, neighborhoods, communities, states, you know, within our nation, between different groups of people, um, nationalities, races, religions, political groups. Gosh, if we could just do that. Zeddy, what would you say if I said to you, what's your reaction to if a bunch of people got onto a government-owned ship and destroyed all the cargo on that ship, totally destroyed it, what would you call that group of people? Oh, just uh, a mob uh, out of control. Uh, yeah. Where's maybe, the police? <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe terrorists who are destroying I government property. Uh, I don't know if I'd use that word, not terrorists. I mean, I know that's probably what we'd label them in our day. But for me, because I see that story of theirs, as well as, you know, the British side of it, as you've portrayed. No, they were just saying, look, enough. And if this is what it takes to get you to know that we mean it, then this is what it takes. They, I guess I, I don't really agree with that kind of thing, like destroying property that belongs to others. Could there have been another way for them? Did they try other ways of communicating with Britain? I mean, I remember. Well, we, we, uh, we, see the back, we see the back and forth with the negotiations that went back and forth. But the colonists would want something. Uh, the parliament would react and they would do something stronger. Well, they did yeah, something stronger. Yeah. The colonists were one-upping, were, yeah, were one-upping one back and yeah. forth with the point yeah. where, you know, those people from Boston got on those ships and destroyed $75,000 worth of tea yeah. that was governmentally owned at that point. So, our, I mean, our whole point is trying to understand both points of view and understand tragically how these things possibly could have been avoided. Right. So so it doesn't get to the point where where the horse has to throw the rider off. Correct. Correct. (laughs) So, well, in your reading, did you come across anything by the commanding general, General Thomas Gage? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he was quite fascinating to read about because it was in his hands. Was he also the governor? Or just general, or was he a general he was, and a governor? He was both. The, he you was know, both. The, that's what I thought. Okay, that's king, what I the thought. The king made him the military governor of Massachusetts. Okay, so he had a huge responsibility over a ton of the British troops. One thing that I loved is when my daughter and I got to visit Minuteman National Park there in Massachusetts. That it, you know how we're all told the story. The British are coming. The British are coming. You know, Paul Revere saying that. It wasn't the British are coming. It's the regulars. Regular. They were called the regulars. So General Gage commanded the regulars. And I learned about grenadiers, that they're the largest and they were the largest and best soldiers in a troop. There was light infantry that uh, they would recruit the more active soldiers that had a lot of, I don't know, energy to protect. Their mission was to protect the British soldiers from snipers. I don't know if this is correct. It sounded to me that there'd be like nine, about 900 soldiers in a regiment. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how many regiments there were. Do, do you know that there were British regiments there were? In- oh, yeah. I mean, it's depending on, on how large the army is that's being sent into that area. What else about, I mean, in your listening, anything that stood out about Thomas Gage, the general Thomas Gage? Uh, 
No, I was just more following the actual story of, okay. for instance, how it took two trips for him to load his soldiers into boats to get across the harbor to the mainland. They landed in the unused areas because they didn't want to be discovered and they were unused because they're wet and swampy. So his soldiers had to go through swampy stuff up to their knees. It's late at night when he's loading them. They haven't slept yet. You know, um, by the time they get all over on the other shore, it's like two in the morning. Now they've got to start their march. So that's kind of all I've, as far as the okay. setting, but, how, but do how, tell. How does Thomas Gage become the commanding general in the Americas? I don't Do know, Arch. That is a good question. How did he become? I thought you were supposed to be asking the question, Ted. <laughs> well, I am. I'm asking. I'm dishing it back. Dishing well, it back Thomas, on you, Arch. You know, the Brits, the British, the British were losing the French and Indian War for the first several years. And the reason was is because the French was connected to the Native Americans. And a large part of these battles that were taking place were guerrilla-type battles. They weren't open land battles. And the French were using guerrilla tactics that they were taught by the Native Americans to fight that way. Well, the British are losing the French and Indian War. Thomas Gage is sent over by Parliament to be an active part of the British military, and particularly upper state New York. And Gage saw what was happening. And it was Thomas Gage, Lydia, who retrained regiment after regiment after regiment of British troops how to fight more like a guerrilla type of war and have this, which we would call it today the light infantry or the the, the uh, 10th Mountain Division or the Navy SEALs or the Marines. He wow. retrained a lot of the British military to fight that way against the French and the, the Native Americans, which ultimately won the French and Indian War for the British. How did he learn the, those tactics? He was thinking outside of the box and he came over here and he saw the tactics that they were using and he saw what was working for the French and Native Americans and just converted it over to train more like it's light infantry troops, mm -hmm. you know, th that we had from World War II on basically in our military. So when the French and Indian War is over, Thomas Gage then stays in the Americas, becomes a commanding officer in the Americas for the British. And then as this began to unravel politically and economically between Parliament and the colonists, uh, Thomas Gage is now elevated to be the military governor of Massachusetts. So, well, that was pretty brilliant on his behalf brilliant. that he would take advantage of his observations. Yes. And yes. then, you know, as far as what was working that the yeah. enemy was doing and then apply it to his troops. And one of the things we always teach our students and when we're studying military history, one of the principles, which was it's one of the classic principles to defeat an enemy, you must understand their culture. Yeah. And Thomas Gage, because he was here for so long and he came, I believe, in 1757, you know, he understood our culture because he was now here for many, many years. He immersed himself into the colonial culture after the French and Indian War. And so when Lexington and Concord happens, he's pretty much already understanding the colonist mindset at that point. 
Which is interesting. I would think then, now that he understands the colonist mindset, in addition to how the French Indian War, you know, their tactics, that he could have been, what, more of a go-between to represent than the mind of the colonists to the king and parliament, along with Edmund Burke. Edmund Burke. Well, one, yeah. he's, he's a loyal, loyal soldier in the British military. Two, he understands the hierarchy of command at that point. And again, a lot of this is being dictated mm-hmm. to the British general, generals yeah, in the Americas from, the from Parliament who didn't understand it. So, so wow. believe He's it or not, caught between he, two worlds. he is. He is. And you, you and I are caught between two worlds because we are up against time for this segment. <laughs> Already. Dang it. Let's Dang do it, it again. Well, we're going to continue on, <laughs> listeners. So, Lydia, please hang on. Listeners, we're going to continue our conversation with Lydia Nuttall about Lexington and Concord. And we're going to pick up with Thomas Gage and how he understood the colonists here. So, Lydia, thank you. It, You're it's, welcome. It's so good to have you and talk with you. And we're going to continue on in our next program with Lydia. Yay. So, so Lydia, thank you. And please hang on. And we're going to continue on. So this is WFYL, 1180 AM, working for your liberty. 